found the Looking Glass Forum, and we are here confronting the heavy content of our 24-hour news cycle, researching the complex dilemmas facing our modern technotronic society. Remember, the lies are many, but the truth is one. So here we are, we're back again, and in this section we're returning from uh, discussing the complexity of the subject of racial heritage and how many provocateurs are seizing on the historic abuses of slavery to create unrest over the question of correcting the wrongs of the past, which is, of course, not really possible. You don't have a time machine to go back and correct the wrongs of the past. But we have a way of understanding today how we've arrived at our freedoms. And so this is a complex subject in America today, and we, we must return it in logical order to the questions of the slave trade and how those facets of history affect us today. As we have seen, the mechanism of the slave trade was not particularly concerned with their victims' nationality or racial heritage, but only the profits they could earn. And um, the issue of the slave trade became quickly politicized during the 1700s as people began to realize that that the idea of a people that held as a slave population was not going to be a workable idea. In fact, the southern states had often allowed their slaves to, to have Bibles and to read and to even have churches. And this southern gospel ethic and even the... Um, we see the movie Glory, where the idea that the black slaves were becoming people who were embracing the Bible teachings about the Israelites, about freed, being freed from the promise, to the promised land. And so these ideas uh, were being introduced to the black community at that time. And so it's no surprise that Abraham and Lincoln would rise and the slaves would be freed. But during that time, the idea was very politicized. And France and Britain both had freed their slaves. But the truth of the matter is that the, many of the Union states in America had made it illegal to hold slaves in their states uh, in the North long before either England or France uh, abolished slavery. In fact, they never allowed slavery to begin with. So we must remember that the real abolitionist movement began with those northern Yankee Protestant states who never thought that slavery was proper and they even facilitated Harry Tubman's uh, Underground Railroad to get to the north and even into Canada where the men who were being held as slaves from Africa could be free. So we're saying all that to say that it was really a really highly political issue. It was a, a hotly, highly, uh, de- highly debated issue. And it was clear that the issue was going to tear the union apart. Uh, the, the loose, the loosely held colonies that had declared their independence from the European masters and broken the, the ties of submission required by their Kings. They had decided to be their own nations and it was expected that this experiment would collapse and fail and that indeed that there would be a slave revolt similar to what happened in Haiti. So as we can see that there was a couple of factors that would come into play that would um, make the issue work out differently than I guess many in Europe planned. And we can see that the the banking interests, the high banking interests, the large monopoly banks had already uh, funded both sides of the war. So they were going to fund, you would have the same banking institutions funding the Confederacy and funding Abraham Lincoln in the Union. And there was a mad rush to get the, the cannons and get all the equipment and the muskets and the, and the, and the, 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 the necessary implements of war so that the, the Union colonists, the Protestant men of, of America would go to war and kill each other and tear each other up. And of course, that was the plan of the banking system. And if, in, in, in those kind of circumstances, they, they can't lose because whatever side wins will owe back the massive debt that they borrowed to create the army. 
and whatever side loses will obviously just be uh, all, all their holdings will have been ca uh, collateral to the bank. And, and since they would have failed, then then all, all everything that they all their all their assets would have been liquefied. So, in any case, this is really where the stranglehold of the banking monopoly in Europe is trying to take control of the Americas. And we can see that influence as the Pope steps in and sends letters of, of recommendation to Jefferson Davis, letters of support, and um, condemns Lincoln as a heretic. In fact, I was reading a book where they can many in Europe considered America to be a, a, a nation of heretics, slaves, and witches. Which is famously the uh, the end the uh, the victims of the Inquisition. So we're going to also examine a book here by um, an author, Mars. And it's a pretty well known book. It's easy to get, and I'm not necessarily suggesting that this is these are all the absolute concrete facts uh, on the matter. But these are just what I'm gonna, what I'm reading is is just to give you an idea of what the general historical understanding is behind the subterfuge and the nuances and the mechanics of the Illuminati as it, you know, had developed in, in Europe, specifically in Bavaria, and as it became a system that tried to engulf and overturn and control all governments and systems of religion, and it became just a will to power. So here we will take a look at the author's work. And it talks about, it starts out, it has been shown how the principles of the Illuminati continue to thrive long after the demise of the Bavarian order and the assassination of Australian Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which pre precipitated World War One, has been attributed to European Illuminized Freemasonry and the followers of whom began planning for war before 1912. So we'll go down a little more. And um, <clears throat> it begins to talk here about a woman who released her, her, her father's notes. And it's a little known. It was regarding a little known Rackin Society in New Orleans, which had been connected to the Illuminati. And based on the notes um, of her father, she learned that they were Illuminati agents and that they were that they had information behind the uh, the poisoning of several U.S. presidents, including Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor. And it goes on to say they also poisoned President James Buchanan in 1857, but he survived. And she said that the, it goes on to say that she said that there were three presidents that were they were the three presidents obstructing the Illuminati and many of the the House of Rothschild banking interests um, in Europe during the Civil War. And she also pointed out that there was connections to the Yale University's Skull and Bones Society, which is merely a branch of the Illuminati. She said it all began as a front for the activities of Masons like Albert Pike, Judah Benjamin, and John Slidell, who would become the leaders and the presidents of the Confederacy. In fact, on a side note, there's a famous statue, a huge bronze statue of Albert Pike in Washington, D.C., and he was famously one of the main men who, who uh, brought into being the Ku Klux Klan in the South, the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. So it's amazing to me that with all the things going on today, no one has taken notice of the statue of Albert Pike, who was one of the leaders of the Confederacy. And it goes on to say that she echoed the words of a German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck by saying that the House of Rothschild, banking dynasty, was fearful that the United, United States would begin printing its own money and create a central bank not connected to the Rothschilds or, or to European interests, because there's many other banking families like the Rothschilds. They're not, definitely not the only one. It goes on to say, employed a secret society, that is to say that the, the European banking interests employed a secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle to create conflict in America, which led to the war between the states. She also stated that 13... Different families established the secret powers of the aristocracy from Europe that still had have long held a vested interest in controlling what would originally have been their colonies here in the Americas. So that's going to be just a little 
clip of this very interesting book here called The Illuminati, The Secret Society That Hijacked the World by author Mars here. And it's just it's just a really interesting it's page three eighteen, by the way, and it's just an interesting look at how people are becoming coming together to collectively view his, in a historical sense the way that the, the, the power interests in Europe have sought long sought to control through polit- political means, through globalization, and through secret societies and other different mechanisms of power that they have at their disposal, including, again, we have uh, in just this one article, the Knights of the Golden Circle and also the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And, and it's a return, like we said before, again, to this feudal idea of lords and kings and knights and and and, and those who are there to to scatter the rabble, the rabble and to trample down the peasants who might try to revolt. Um, and having God's divine authority and the divine right of kings to rule over all others. And so we see that whole concept refuted here in the revolution in America to say that every man has the right equally to, to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is a very different idea than what we see in the Dark Ages, where the only man who had those kind of rights were the sovereign, and everyone else's lives and the rights and liberties were to be dismissed at the will of those who were supposedly subjected to his authority given to him by Rome and thereby by God. So the Protestant Reformation would bring an end to this whole line of thinking. Even Martin Luther, who was famously began as a monk and who would go up the stairs on his knees and kneeling and going up each step on his knees and praying for forgiveness because of the, the rigors of Roman Catholic or uh, orthodoxy, which said that you must, you know, expunge your sins and whip yourself, and you must execrate by your own suffering your sins. And then once he found the gospel and read that Christ's forgiveness was by faith to all who would accept it freely, it changed the whole notion of Christianity. And later in life, he even got married and had children. So you can see how completely his his life was changed by hearing of the truth. And of course the whole system of ultramontane papal knighthoods was erected in some sense to, you know, at the the behest of the Jesuit order, was created in order to keep that orthodoxy in place, keep the peasantry in check, keep the uh, authority of the kings and the feudal system in place, and basically keeping the Pope's authority in check and, and alive and well. And so as they attempted to do this, they were standing against the tide of history. And as people began to print out the Bible with the printing press, uh, men began to learn and to see that for centuries they had been held in darkness. And so the, the revolt for human liberty, ultimately the American Revolution was a universal movement that crystallized man's right to his life, to his weaponry, to his King James Bible, and to his to all those freedoms were developed as a as a reaction to the principles of the Dark Ages and the Inquisition that tried to just to, to, to crush the souls of men under a religious boot. And as I'm move, moving forward here, I just noticed a little a note here in the back of Saint Ignatius Loyola and the Early Jesuits by Stuart Rose. And I'm, when I'm, I'm just checking some references, 1891. And right here, it, it has a reference on page 179. It says, Les Jacobins, the Dominican house in Paris. And it goes on to say that the Ecole de St. Thomas, which formed part of the convent, was the school of divinity frequented by St. Ignatius and his companions in France. So the Dominicans got the name of Jacobins because the house was in the Rue Saint-Jacques, which was in the, 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 the Jacob Street. And the library of the Dominican novitiate in the Rue Saint-Honoré was occupied by the club of the extreme Democratic Party in France during the Revolution. And from it, the club took its name of Jacobins. So 
this is a direct connection where you can see right there in the French history that the extreme revolutionaries uh, that were being fomented in France for, to the, for revolt had got their name, the Jacobins, as a direct connection to the Dominican house where uh, Ignatius Loyola and his original Jesuit companions would, would, would visit centuries before. So it's, a really, it's an obvious direct connection to the influence that the Jesuits would have in France and stirring up the revolutions and also in giving uh, false counsel, if you will, to the kings and to the lords to misdirect their, their efforts in order to accomplish the, the, the mission of overturning the monarchy. So here, in reference to that, we have a simple reference we can find on the internet. This philosopher Richard Rorty said of Hegel, if philosophers are doomed to find Hegel patiently waiting at the end of whatever road we travel. And Derrida said, Hegelianism only extends its historical domination, finally unfolding its immense, enveloping resources without obstacle. And that Hegel is a notoriously opaque philosopher and is frequently misinterpreted even by experts. Part of the reason he wrote is such that he has such an impenetrable style was that he was seeking to conceal his membership within the Illuminati, and in fact that his philosophy is inspired by the religion of the Illuminati, and much of the detail of the Illuminati's religion can be found in his works. And he goes on to say, however many ordinary people, because his, his philosophical writing style was so dense and so symbolic that most people cannot really fathom it or, or really penetrate its, its meaning. And so without looking for too long, I can find pretty quickly a write-up here by Charlene R. Forsythe about George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, Hegelianism, and what's famously known as the Hegelian dialectic principle. So, so Hegel was going to be a, a pretty famous uh, philosopher, you know, the intellectual class in Germany. And he was famously, after... Adam Weishaupt, who's going to be the second to take over uh, the Illuminati secret society, so which would be which would be known later on. So the write-up goes: um, Who was uh, Jorge Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel? And it says Hegel, 1770 to 1831, was the founder of the Hegelian principle or the Hegelian dialectic. And his book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, author historian William Shearer quotes on page 144, that Hegel as saying, the state has the supreme right against the individual whose supreme duty is to be the member subordinate to the state. For the right of the world, spirit is above all special privileges. So in 1847, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels at the London Communist League used Hegel's theory of the dialectic thinking to back their economic theory of communism. And today, in the 19, in the 21st century, the Hegelian Marxist thinking affects the entire social and political structure of the world. The Hegelian dialectic principle is a framework for guiding every individual's thoughts and actions into conflicts that will lead to a predetermined solution. So it is extremely important to understand how the Hegelian dialectic principle shapes the individual perception in order to implement the ultimate synthesis. So it goes on to say that secret societies use the Hegelian principle as one of the elements towards world control. The Hegelian principle would use the idea of creating two conflicts and that this is called thesis versus antithesis and resulting clashes would bring a synthesis or a desired end result. So as we look at the article, we can clearly see how the author retraces the steps of history carefully, accounting for the paradigm between the struggle for Protestant liberty against the ubiquitous religious imperialism of Rome. And for many centuries, the Holy Roman Empire implemented the will of the Vatican across Europe, and we can use it to clearly indicate what well, was a clear precedent for how the Roman Church would subordinate the authority of the sovereign and of the state and the government and usurp the liberties of the people 
if that weren't really suspect enough and problematic enough, they would ultimately reduce the civil society to rubble with their religious tyranny as just a matter of history. And the results would be slavery, mass butchery, centuries of war, inquisitional dungeons, religious persecution and murder, and torture committed in the name of assuaging God for the purposes of religion. So, if you were pronounced a heretic, and a heretic could be anyone that they pronounced, a witch, or Muslims, Jews, perhaps gypsies, anyone, the general persecution of the Inquisition and toward the latent superstitions, prejudices of the Middle Age world. In the medieval mindset, in the universe of the, of the Dark Ages, there was no comprehension of the notion of the rights of a man the right to life, to his life, or to his own liberty, or to his own pursuits. A uh, man was wholly owned, ultimately, by the state itself. And ultimately, whether you were peasants on the land, or you were the landlord who was there to make sure the peasants worked and grinded the grain, and did the blacksmithing, and did the laundry and the cooking, and you ultimately had everyone serving you and you're the landlord. Ultimately, you really served the king. And the king had all of his landlords and all of his, his noblemen and knights working for him. But ultimately, the king would, would bend the knee and, and, and serve the pope. And so you would have this power structure in place. So I want us to take a closer look at that. And it was in this kind of crucible of terror that was wrought by the, the secret council of the church and the state together, the bloody union of the throne and the altar emerges as the edifice of the tyranny that we're ultimately trying to escape and destroy with our revolt here in America. And as we're looking back, I want us to return to this mode of reference so that we might, even though we're coming from many different points of view here in our modern era, we must be able to frame the place and the time of this point in history. The author, the author here of this article <clears throat> is accurately portraying the struggle within the Western civilization for the last thousand years and the clandestine war between Protestant Reformation and the Counter-Reformation has characterized the entire scope of history for the last nine centuries, yet today the average person on the street couldn't intelligently discuss it at all. And though this universal conflict has overshadowed every aspect of European and world history, for like I said, for countless centuries, it's not something that's well understood at all. And wherever we are in our lives today, the debate over religious authority and freedom of conscience has produced a thousand wars. And the primal struggle for independence declares that a man is free to follow the dictate of his conscience. He has the right to life. And by this, these two simple common sense tenets, the whole complex of religious, economic, intellectual slavery collapses to the ground like broken shackles. And those on the other side submitted to the papal throne have sworn bloody oath, oaths of allegiance to the Pope as the divine appointed voice of God, and in the zeal of religious fanaticism, they burned men alive at the stake by the million, and declared their atrocities in doing this to be good religion. And so we must recognize the extreme disposition of these dynamics within our history, and though we might think little of church today, a little more than a century ago, it was a very dead serious matter. And as we return to the article, we see therein express both sides of the struggle of statism by Hegel. And that is that the state is absolute, and any who will not submit should be destroyed. And, and it's clear that the imperialism which trod down the peasants and the common man under the authoritarian state ruled by Rome is well defined by the Hegelian principles well after the age of the Enlightenment.
So in the Dark Ages, we see that the, the papacy is absolute, and any who won't submit to her absolute religious authority should be destroyed. And then, of course, after the Enlightenment era, we have the highly intellectualized philosophical doctrine of Hegel that says that the state is absolute and that the individual is subordinate and any who, should, who won't submit should be destroyed. Back to the article now and just take a look at some of the quotations they have. And as it begins here, and the article, again, is called Understanding the Craftiness of the Hegelian Principle. And it goes on to say, this is the principle that is being used worldwide to successfully set up and take down rulers. And it is clear that Papal Rome's ultimate goal is to synthesize a one-world government free of all dissenters. And Papal Rome believes it has the divine right to use this principle to attain its goals, of course. It has believed that for many, many centuries. Thomas Aquinas, great philosopher of the Roman Catholic Church, said, The Pope, by divine right, hath spiritual and temporal power as supreme king of the world. And the Pope of Rome, as head of the papal government, claims absolute sovereignty and supremacy over all the governments of the earth. And this is quoted in uh, Luther S. Kaufman, Romanism as a World Power, page 30 and 31. And the article continues with yet yeah, another quote. Cardinal Henry Manning, 1892, Archbishop of Westminster, said the right of deposing kings is inherent in the supreme sovereignty which the popes as vice regents of Christ exercise over all the Christian nations. That's in Hector McPherson's work, The Jesuits in History, on page 115. Another quote, it's the Jesuit order's objective, and still is, to destroy the effects of the Reformation and to reestablish the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. A greater Germany, in other words, must be made again in the center of the revived Holy Roman Empire. And this was written by Leo Lehman in Behind the Dictators, page 26. Many orders of the secret societies have successfully used the Hegelian principle to begin the breakdown of Protestantism. The ultimate goal is about a new world order that will rule over all the nations and unify all religious sects. In the latter day of the Dark Ages, the Jesuit order had a series of secret societies that served the power to control all the monarchs of Europe which was the desire of the popes, of course, and all the individual states, and keep the religious expansion of Protestant Protestantism under control. Many times the Jesuit order would not be tolerated even in the Roman Catholic countries and were banned by many kings from their countries. Finally, the Jesuits were suppressed during the period between 1773 and 1814. However, their underground plan directed ultimately the Illuminati, the Freemasons, to set up a godless kingdom in atheistic France. Events that occurred during the time period, that time period were the Illuminati being raised up in 1776, the French Revolution in 1789, between 1789 and 1798, which was planned in an effort to destroy societal freedoms and social constructs. And and then 1798 was the dethronement of the papacy, and it was an act to remove it from the center stage of history. So, in this article, we can clearly see the author's intent. And ultimately, ultimately we must realize that the freedom of the people was on the march. And that at this point in time, the king of France was more amenable to put into effect the Edict of Nantes, again, which had been taken down. So, the, you know, French kings had famously put into place the Edict of Nantes, which allowed for religious freedom and religious liberty and protected Protestants, so like Huguenots. And so ultimately, out of France would rise John Calvin, and he was ultimately one of the ones who would bring forth the actual written textual word of God to the people so that they could read it and preach out of it, and ultimately would destabilize the, 
the, the power and the authority of Rome, which is a foreign city and a foreign nation, and and really brought into question its credibility have, have, as having any religious authority or legitimacy to the people of France. So as this, this is welling up, and as, at this point in time, as the a, a pope in Rome is censuring and dis dissolving and disbanding forever the Jesuit order in 1773, ultimately the forces of the Jesuit order would still be in, in play, but only covertly. And so in a clandestine way, they would operate and with asymmetric warfare, which is ultimately what you're going to see here. So they would operate with the Jacobins, and they would destabilize the entire country. And so they would do this in several different ways. And using a lot of the nobility and the knighthoods, because remember the Jesuit order control, and were involved in keeping in line the nobility who were in line to behind the throne and what their orders were and who was second or third in line, what counts and dukes and, and, and duchess, duchesses controlled what areas and what authorities and what titles and all the different kingdoms. The, the Jesuits were masters of making sure that all the nobility were lined up and that all the, you know, the authority and the expenses of the knighthood orders were, were taken care of. And these are papal knights. So we're talking about the Knights of Malta, ultimately uh, orders that were similar to the Templar Knights. <clears throat> But in a more modern sense, and so since the Jesuit would control all the aristocracy and the nobility of France, they would also stir up the people on the streets. So while they're uh, working hard, telling Louis that the people, uh, that the king of France, that the, the people on the street are a rabble and they should be uh, disbanded with muskets and swords and hung. They're also on the streets telling the people in the streets that King Louis is a wicked tyrant king and ought to be, you know, uh, overthrown and killed and that he's starving them. And so as Louis is desperately trying to get resources to the people, the resources are being uh, uh, sabotaged and not reaching where they're going. So all this is happening to bring about this ultimate guided revolution. So the Jacobins are kind of diabolic, and they're made to ultimately be a mysterious, uh, unaccountable group that stands out as a question mark in history. Uh, they're had that Masonic ties to Freemasonry, and ultimately um, they have a, an undercurrent of, 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 of anti-Semitism because they're kind of blaming uh, Jacob being a fundamentally Jewish. Uh, name and title is, is in the, being the Jacobins seem to be an undermining force of revolutionaries who are there just to destroy the place and ultimately um, disband and just be it having been just a, an operation under another name. So we have to kind of explore the ties of the Jacobins to understand what was happening in France. And we have to remember too that the guillotine at the time was invented by a man who was, uh, I believe he was a doctor, I have to look it up, but, but Mr. Guillotine, as it were, a Frenchman, who invented the guillotine uh, for a system of dispatching people in a most humane way, not another brutal uh, dungeon, uh, you know, burning at the stake experience, but just being uh, quickly and mechanically disposed of by the state, I and mean, with a new machine, which is quite um, uh, an Enlightenment era innovation, where we're, we're going to have the state mechanically uh, destroy the people uh, democratically, and of course that are being chanted for by the mobs, and ultimately the, the French Revolution would go off the rails into the Great Terror, and it was a bloody reign of terror that lasted for for months. It would spread to outside of Paris and consume hundreds of thousands of lives as the people that were ultimately guillotining everyone would be grabbed by the mob and they, they themselves would be guillotined. Ultimately, the king and the queen would be guillotined and it just became an out-of-control uh, frenzy of mania and breakdown of anarchy and ultimately would give rise to a strong man, a military dictator, Napoleon Bonaparte. And as we're starting to take a closer look at the French Revolution in that era, we have a series of consequential revolutions taking place. And as, a, as history has come to discover after the fact, tremendous forces were arrayed against the Enlightenment and against the people as they are beginning uh, of Europe 
as they're beginning to clamor for freedom after centuries of despotism at the hands of the status quo. They had been for centuries serving tyrants appointed to keep the boot of the state on the necks of the people. And it was not the mere threat of the death penalty that was really the main concern that we were looking at, even though it was terribly unjust and people could be butchered wholesale without any kind of recognition of human rights or a trial that we could understand today. But it was really the, the drudging ignorance and the wretched poverty of generational serfdom and abject servile enthrallment to the subjectivity of the lords and the nobles whose arbitrary authority over their, their lives was, as peasantry, was without recourse. And this is precisely why uh, a show like The Game of Thrones today is so fascinating because it's a reflection of us and who we are. It's a premise, and the entire premise is drawn from the realities of long-ago history of the medieval feudal ages. And in reality, the religion of Rome ruled the kings of Europe, and those they could not rule, they made war against, or used their papal curses uh, of anathema in ceremoniously banning them to hell and consigning them as heretics for defying their whims as gods, vicar, often when they could not burn their enemies, princes, and others, they would burn them in effigy in the town square to make sure everyone got the idea and holding that that spectacle was truly a sacred religious event. <clears throat> and that the intended victim that was still living was indeed truly endangered by the curse of hell that was anathematized through these the, uh, the incantations cast by the, the, the priests. And it, it was in this way we can find in, innumerable examples of how the papacy, with the curia of cardinals arrayed with them, would seem that it was within their power to consign noblemen and princes and anyone that they liked to eternal hell, and that they believed that they had vested within themselves the authority to imperil the immortal souls of others with incantations in Latin, and then proceed to burn them alive as if to literally send them into hellfire. And if that were not enough, once these aristocrats may have been sufficiently punished, the high priests of Rome even claimed the ability to merely undo the sacrosanct curse of eternal damnation, easily reversing it again by the simple sorcery of some mysterious Latin enchantment. And the whole populace of the Dark Ages, marvelously enthralled to these super, superstitious concepts, and the whole populace being illiterate and ignorant without the ability to read a single word in the Bible text Centuries would pass as the cult system of pagan Romanism masqueraded as if itself and its rituals and its costumes, high uh, holy days, were actually the Church of Christianity, in which uh, nothing could be further from the truth. And as the era of enlightenment shed illumination and intellectual advancements in science and technology, we can clearly see that eventually the people would find out the scriptures of God could be understood, translated into their native tongues, and ultimately people would eventually be able to read from themselves the word of God that had been historically the source of the power and credibility of the Pope of Rome and his church. And it is for this reason that I wish to make it known to you that the system of imperialism and absolutism of conquest and religious authoritarian domination that came from Rome for a thousand years was a system of total empire, which once masked itself as a godly church, though they burnt heretics for their own benefit, for the benefit of the heretic. They burnt heretics so that their, their flesh would be mortified before the eyes of God, as if it would save them. Now, this whole system of power and collective wealth, aristocracy, is a systematic tyranny which has moved toward intellectual, philosophical rationalism. Now we would no longer hear 
about the necessity of the heretic to be destroyed for sacrilege and for religious heresy. But instead, the philosophers of Bavaria and Germany would require that the state be vested with the absolute power to destroy all dissenters as a matter of irrefutable logic. Just as we see that people today start to categorize humanity as a virus on the, on the planet that should be somehow destroyed and cut back and cropped back. And it's with these intellectual instruments and these tools of propaganda throughout the United Nations and so on that they've begun to bring back the same methodology from the Dark Ages. And as we were saying, that, that the German philosophers would require the state to be vested with the absolute power to destroy all dissenters as a matter of sheer logic. And that all those malefactors who were the same malefactors as before, the same gypsies and Jews and Muslims and witches and Protestants, but victimized by the Inquisition in the past centuries were now the modern age rationalist malefactors of the state who needed to be eliminated. And we must understand Hegel, we must determine to comprehend the gravity of their ultramontane fanaticism. Hegel led the Illuminati in Bavaria and out of those covert operations the work to overthrow France and later Haiti in a slave revolt and, and the savage mob butchery of out-of-control anarchy were schemes affected into motion by the agents of the Illuminati. So as we take a little break, we'll come back and we'll talk more about how the nobility and the, the French aristocracy was, was controlled on one hand as just as the the people, the, the mobs and the, the, the crowds in the streets were becoming out of control in the streets of France during the French Revolution were, on the other hand, both controlled by agents of the Jacobins who were really operating for the Jesuit order who has been banned and extinguished from existing. So we'll take a little break and we'll come back and talk about that. We're back here at the Looking Glass Forum and we've been just discovering some very interesting facts of history here, going over some very interesting subject matter. And I wanted to get into, and it's a really interesting article here that I that I found called "The Religious Origins of the French Revolution, 1590 to 1791." It's a really in-depth paper, and we can't read it all, but we can just give it a look to see how complex the issue was that really devolved and erupted in the collapse of the country during the the reign of terror that took place in France. So we'll begin to read a little bit here. So bound up with Catholicity was Louis XVI's concept of French kingship that this incident was an important factor, perhaps the decisive factor, in his fateful attempt to flee France on 21st June 1791 for the safety of the eastern border. And we might add, because of the mobs and the mob violence that was happening. Only to be recognized and arrested at Verena. The road to Verena ultimately led to the king's final falling out with an ever more radical revolution and his execution in January 1793. Thus did absolute monarchy and Catholicity rise and go down together in France. While the alliance between them remained constant, what obviously varied from the end of the 16th century to the end of the 18th was the attitude toward both of a good many of the monarch subjects doubling as the church's, the church's lay faithful. For the intervening two centuries had gradually transformed the realm's subjects into citizens who had come to think that the last word in matters of both church and state belonged by rights to them. And of course this is taking place after America has had its revolution and after uh, slaves were already freed in France and were going to soon be freed in America after the Civil War. So we go back to the article. What accounts for the seismic shift in attitudes towards religious and political power as well as in the relation between them over the course of two centuries? The textbook answer is, of course, the secularization of mentalities for which the shorthand is the Enlightenment. Yet while far from untrue, this answer begs the question because the Enlightenment in France was not quite like any other 
in Europe or America being unique in the degree of its anti-clericalism and hostility to revealed religion. The nature of the French Enlightenment thus calls for an explanation in turn, one that cannot bypass developments between the 16th and 18th century. One of, the, one of these developments is religious and may be introduced by any of a number of characteristic crossroads, like the conversion of Henry IV or Louis XVI's decision to try and flee France. Another such crossroad conveniently lies midway between the two others. This on one in, 19, in 1693, about a quarter century before an Enlightenment took recognizable form in France, but another quarter century after France had again become divided along religious lines. As in 1791, the issue in 1693 divided Catholics from each other and ran through the French Catholic Church, pitting a majority who sided with the papacy and its doctrinal decisions against a Jansenist minority who rejected some of these decisions and yet persisted in viewing themselves as both better Catholics and Frenchmen than their opponents were. Jansenists effectively combined their identities as Catholics and good Frenchmen by arguing that the Pope's judgments were without force in France, unless freely accepted by the Gallican, that is, the French Catholic clergy. For one of the historic rights or liberties claimed by the Gallican Church was that, that of judging doctrine concurrently with Rome, at least in the absence of a general council of the whole Church, that alone in the Gallican view, possessed Christ's promise of infallibility. That being the, the entire congregation of the church council, not necessarily the, uh, the bishopric in Rome, which is a single man who, who thought that his word could ultimately set up or tear down any doctrine. So back to the article. Although Gallicanism traditionally defied, defined appealed to the late medieval general council of Constance's degree that the spiritual counterpart to sovereignty within the Catholic Church lay with the whole church assembled council. What happened in 1693 is that Louis the XIV acceded to Pope Innocent XI's request that he disavow these Gallican liberties, though, even though he himself had strong-armed the Gallican clergy into proclaiming them in its general assembly only a dec decade earlier, in 1682. If he disavowed this declaration in 1693, he did so in part in order better to proceed against Jansenists, whom he suspected of being crypto-Calvinists and cause of Republicans, and who joined Protestants as the most persecuted people in old regime France, that is to say, under the monarchies. So, as the article continues, although perhaps not irreversible at the time, Louis XIV's decision nonetheless became so toward the end of his reign in 1713 when he desolicited and obtained a papal bull called Unigenitus and censored the tenets of Gallicanism along with the Jansenist doctrines that, that were condemned earlier. So this is a, a bull that was issued by the Pope that condemned and anathematized all the Gallican clergymen and basically made them a curse so they could use this as a political weapon against them. So back to the article, becoming a symbol both of absolute royal power and infallible papal authority, this bull set the pro-papal Bourbon monarchy on a collision course with a portion of its own clergy. It's a royal judges and even the, the Parisian public opinion at large. At the same time, the enlightenment of Voltaire and Montesquieu was taking shape in 18th century France. This public would grow ever more sympathetic to Jansenists and more hostile to their chief enemies, the Jesuits, who, since Henry IV, had become so influential in making of royal religious policy. Still, still pro-Jansenist, though on a trajectory ending in a rejection of revealed religion in general, this hostility would become poignantly apparent in the occasion of royal judges' trial and dissolution of the Jesuits and their society in defiance of the king's known will in the year 1762. From 1593 to 1791, five telltale chronological markers in a trajectory from an era of religious revolutions to a self-consciously irreligious revolution by way of religion itself. 
The pages that follow are devoted to explaining and connecting these points along a line making up some of the religious origins of the French Revolution. 1. Religion, religious origins, and royal religion. The argument that a revolution that eventually turned against Christianity itself had religious origins is nothing if not counterintuitive, calling for an initial word or two by way of apologetic explanation. One possible helpful consideration is that a revolution with paradoxically religious origins and secularizing consequences was far from new in 1789. After all, the Protestant dissenting tradition played a major role in the almost simultaneous American Revolution and its disestablishment of religion at the national level, while Puritanism similarly destroyed the Anglican establishment and dealt deadly blows to a quasi-sacral monarchy during the Great Rebellion in England a century and a half earlier. To be sure, the French Revolution is different in that its idea of revolution is itself more revolutionary, and it is eventually abandoned the goal of reforming Christianity in favor of trying to abolish it entirely. Yet that only gave both anti-clerical revolutionaries and Catholic counter-revolutionaries equal if opposite motives for obscuring any religious origins the revolution may have had, a bias inherited by both liberal and conservative historians of the revolution throughout the following century. Such origins are therefore best viewed from a distance, the best perspective being from well before the revolution, hence the, the chronological scope of this argument. In old regime Europe, the most pertinent such matrix was the confessional state. The confessional state is that is what took the place of the medieval ideal of seamless Catholic Christendom when both Protestant and Catholic Reformations and more than a century of intermittent religious conflict, the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 retroactively ratified the, the fact of religious diversity and religious peace of Augsburg. And the formula, which is sui regio, iju religio, means uh, whosoever reigns, his religion reigns. So whatever king you would have, that would be the religion of the land. With, however, the proviso that no future royal conversions could alter the confessional status of their dominions, thereafter each state and dynasty sought to give itself legitimacy by replacing the universal Catholic Church with an established confessional church that, even if Catholic, acted as a state or dynastic church as well. There's another part here about conversion of Henry of Navarre. Until and even after then, it was easy for Catholics to suspect the sincerity of Henry's conversion to Catholicism because he had converted twice before, most re recently in the wake of his marriage to Marguerite de Valois and the infamous St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of Huguenots in August 1572. I think upwards of 100,000 Protestant Huguenots were slaughtered by Catherine Medici, the queen, in a, in a, a deceitful backstabbing maneuver. But we'll get back to the article here. Before these events, he had been a Protestant mainly on account of the influence of his mother, Jeanne d'Albret, heir of Biern and Navarre, and he married into the princely and partly Protestant Bourbon family. Several years after the marriage and massacre, Henry escaped from the royal court, whereupon he reconverted to Protestantism and emerged as the Huguenot cause's best general, taking the place of Gaspard de Colony the Grand Admiral, and the first victim of Saint, the St. Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Although the intent of his marriage to Marguerite was to strengthen his ties to the Valois line, Henry was only distantly related to the Regent dynasty and did not become eligible to succeed Henry III until the death of the king's brother, who had no child in 1584. Given this contestable claim, Henry's Protestantism was all the more disabling, and as such, he could probably have become king only by dismembering France and imposing himself as a head of an already quasi-separate entity in the South, where the Protestant presence was the strongest. After his abjuration and coronation, Henry tried further to demonstrate his legitimacy as well as his sincerity by taking a Jesuit as his court preacher and confessor, symbol of the Catholic counter-reformation and papal prerogatives, both spiritual and temporal, the Jesuit was to become part of the Baroque decor of the French royal court with the suppression of the society in France a century and a half later. To ask whether Henry of Navarre could have become Henry IV of France as a Calvinist is to ask 
if as such we could have anointed a Catholic bishop, taking Catholic communion, sworn to expunge France of all heresies, and then to have the question, in other words, is not whether Calvinism was compatible with monarchy in some form, it was, but whether it was compatible with the form that the French monarchy had assumed by the 16th century, and the answer to that is no. The monarchy would have had to undergo a drastic reformation of its own to have to become compatible with a Christianity such as a church as reformed as the form that Protestantism took in France. First in line of fire was the million or so strong Huguenot community concentrated in the South and Southwest, already deprived of their separate status and strong places by Louis the Thirteenth In 1629, this confessional community now experienced the steady attrition of the religious toleration guaranteed them by the Edict of Nantes from the moment that Louis XIV personally took the reins of government until he formally revoked the edict in 1685, named the Edict of Fontblanc. The Edict of Revocation sent perhaps half of this now specific population into flight to England, the Netherlands, and Protestant German states, parts of the Swiss Republic, and transformed those who stayed in France into non-person whose births and marriages remained illegal unless they were solemnized as Catholic sacraments. It also created a Huguenot diaspora, bringing Louis XIV's France to Catholique, that the whole religious origin of the French Revolution by itself was to play a leading role in the making and marketing of a radical enlightenment, as well as in the spread of anti-absolutist political thought, some of it salvaged from Huguenot sources from the 1570s. So that's really a mouthful, but it really does a lot to cover the subject matter. And at that period, right, when the French Revolution was going to break out, we're having this really exaggerated social conflict regarding the issue of religion and which Christianity is the, is the, is the true Christianity. And of course, uh, the armies of the Pope and the, the priesthood are, are willing to come in there for Rome and set up the the inquisitional tribunals and start to arrest all heretics and have them confess uh, under torture and basically sort out who the real Christians really are. And of course, the Edict of Nantes protections were protecting uh, the Huguenots, the Jansenists, and the Gallican French clergy to speak their mind and basically oppose Roman Catholic uh, autocracy over the whole religion of the nation. So we're going to have several things pointing out. We have the Jansenists on one hand who are following a, a certain Christian Christian ethic, and then you have the uh, the crypto Calvinists, and you have the Gallican French clergy who depose the Pope and seek to have the authority to determine what the doctrine of the land is, and then you have the French King who's kind of going back and forth between these different religious forces and having them play against each other and you're really going to have this whole reign of terror break out and destroy the entire system in a conflagration where the Calvinists, the Gallicans, the Jansenists and the, the people on the street and the king himself are all just going to be completely destroyed as their nation collapses and they all murder each other with the guillotine. And of course you have to remember that at the same time, there was a religious revolution in America that disestablishes religion at the national level. So we're going to allow freedom of religion, and we're going to disestablish uh, the, the, any religious principle from being the, the, the dominant principle over the whole nation. So in the collapse of the French Revolution, as the Jesuits set up these Jacobins and other conspirators to just torch the whole thing, they're motivated to destroy the religious origins. The entire congregation of the church would choose to uh, proclaim that the Pope is infallible and an absolute monarch in his own right. All the Protestants, up to half of them in this article that we were just reading, described that half of them are going to flee to England. And this is in the 1790s. So the confessional state that had protected them and the Edict of Nantes that could not be changed, had collapsed by the work of the Jesuits, and there was no more any religious protection. And in this religious intolerance meant that the Inquisition would soon arrive, and people would be start being arrested and interrogated and murdered, burned, auto de fe. 
by the Inquisition. And that was the will of the Jesuits in order to rule their, their, their nation. And when they couldn't get it done, then that's when they would set off the, the reign of terror and basically torch the whole, the whole thing. So that's going to complete our episode. I hope you guys will come back and check with us next time.